The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. So good to uh, to be with you today, and I, I just love the Word of God. How many just love God's Word? And excited to preach today. Um, we're continuing to move verse by verse through the book of Galatians. And up to this point, Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has shown very clearly that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. And that we are not saved, emphatically not saved, by inhuman merit. We're justified. In other words, we are made right with God by faith, not by works. And last week, if you missed it, I really encourage you to go online and and listen. We, We saw that those who rely on the law to get right standing with God are under a curse. Because no one can keep the law perfectly. And how many know that the law demands, God's law demands perfection. But thankfully, Jesus Christ, King of kings and lords of lords, made the ultimate sacrifice. By bearing the curse of God on the cross where He became our substitute. The curse of the law fell on Jesus though He didn't deserve it. So that the righteousness of God could fall on us even though we don't deserve it. Friends, that's powerful. That's what happened. That's the beauty and the wonder of the cross. And we are all part of the family of God. Recipients of the blessing of Abraham through faith, not because of what we can do, but because of what Christ has already done. And so our aim is to continually to look to the cross, to look to Christ, to treasure Him, not to look at our own efforts. Amen? That said, I invite you to stand with me for a moment. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. If you have it, say amen. Amen. Okay. Rest of you. Let's go. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. If you don't have your Bible, the words will be on the screen for you. The Bible says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through the angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, 
So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, any careful reader of the first part of Galatians would likely have the question, why in the world did God give us the law? If the law was never meant to save us, and and it seems that the law causes, you know, by what we're reading in Galatians, it seems like it's caused almost nothing but confusion, then what purpose did the law and does the law serve? And then furthermore, I'd like to address this question, does the law have any significance And when we talk about law, we're talking about the Old Testament law, uh, the the Mosaic law. So, does it have any significance in the life of the believer today? And so my aim is to shed some light through our text on both of those questions. If you're taking notes, and I hope you are, we're going to begin here uh, by looking at the solidity of the promise. The solidity of the promise. And so I'm going to begin by talking about the promise By pointing out once again what the law is not meant to do, was not meant to do, and then we'll look at what the law is meant to do. So the solidity of the promise, or you could say the security of the promise. This section of chapter 3 is about living by promise. In verses 15 through 29, the word promise or promises is used eight times in that short section of verses. Now, to live by promise is to live by faith. It's synonymous with that saying. To to live by faith is to live by promise. To live by promise is to live by faith. And what you need to know is that it is the opposite of living by law. Paul points back to Abraham. And we know that Abraham was a man who did not live by law, but a man who walked by faith. He lived by promise. He believed, the Bible says, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now I want you to look at verse 15 with me again. Paul says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Okay? Now, some might conclude, and Paul knew this, that since Moses' law came some four centuries later than the promises to Abraham... That somehow the promise has changed. Here's what that means. That in order to receive the blessing of Abraham, that now you must live by the law of Moses. That would have been what the Judaizers would have preached. The false teachers would have preached. That God somehow changed his mind. And Paul refutes that notion. And he begins uh, by addressing this with a human example. The the second part of verse 15, he says, Even with a man-made covenant... No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now there's a Greek word there for covenant. And it's diatheke. Okay? 
And it is a word that is used to speak of a testament or a legal will. And so think of that, think of a will, and you'll understand what Paul is arguing here. Let me give you an example. If a mother, let's say she has two sons, and in her will, she leaves the younger son her home and the lion's share of what she has, because her older son has more money, he already has a nice home, that will is binding even if immediately after she dies, the conditions change. In other words, let's say the mom passes away and immediately the older son, who is well off, loses all that he has, he loses his job, loses his home, and then on the other hand, the younger son all of a sudden gets a major promotion at work. There's a condition change, but the will doesn't change. It's a binding document. It's signed. It's notarized. It's not going to change. And so Paul says, that's a human contract. That's a human covenant. That's a human will. How much more can we trust the promises of God? Just because the law of Moses came along does not refute that that what we have, the blessing of Abraham, the promise of salvation, is that very thing. It's by promise, not by works. Look with me at verse 18, if you would. He says, for if the inheritance comes by law, watch this, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Let me illustrate this to show you what a big deal this would be if God changed his mind. Let's say, now this is hypothetical, don't hold me to this, alright? Everybody hear that? Let's say that I said to you, hey listen, after service today, I have a crisp $100 bill for you. And it's at my house, all you have to do is come get it and it's yours. Alright? That would be a promise. And you would have to live by promise in order to receive it. If you don't believe what I'm telling you, if you don't have faith in me, then you're not going to show up in my house to receive that $100 bill. But if you believe the promise, you will jet over to my house for that crisp $100 bill. I have your attention now, don't I? But let's just say that when you pull in my driveway, you just happen to notice that my grass hasn't been mowed in about three weeks. And my flower bed is overgrown and weeds just everywhere. And so you come in my front door and you're expecting to receive this crisp $100 bill. And you say to me, hey Chris, listen. I just pulled in your driveway and couldn't help but notice how overgrown your yard is. Needs to be mowed. Do you have a mower? Do you have somebody to do this? Do you know how to mow? And I say to you, oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Because on my way home and when I pulled in my driveway, I actually noticed the same thing. And so I kind of changed my mind to something. I still have $100 for you, but in order to get it, I'm going to need you to go ahead and take care of my lawn for me. I'm going to need you to to go ahead and pull the weeds in my flower bed, and then I promise you that gift is yours. Well, that would be a dirty thing to do, wouldn't it? Because I have now changed from giving you a promise to paying you a wage. It's totally different. Do you think that God's going to do that? He makes a promise and a covenant to Abraham by faith. And then he adds the law and says, oh yeah, by the way, um, you know what, believing is not enough. Actually, I need you to follow these rules too. And then, then only, can you have salvation. So that's Paul's argument that God's promise is trustworthy. It's solid, it's secure. 
The law did not change the original promise made to Abraham. In fact, this is interesting, that promise is sealed by a covenant. Now, I know it's early on Sunday morning, but I need you to go with me somewhere. All right? I need you to put your thinking caps on. We're going to learn a little bit today. This is powerful. If you go back to Genesis, and you can read this later, when we're talking about the blessing, the promises made to Abraham. In Genesis 12, God promises Abram, who later his name is changed to Abraham, that he will make his name great. And he says, through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, Abraham at that time did not know the glory of what God was really talking about. He thought, well, this is great. My name will be great. I'll have multitudes of offspring. But what is that ultimately about? What offspring is it that through which all the nations will be blessed? This is Jesus. What God is really saying is here, through your line is going to come the Messiah, through which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that's why we're blessed today. We're part of the family of God because of that Messiah. And then in chapter 15, God promises Abraham an heir, and He promises his land. Now, if you remember the story of Abraham, remember his wife Sarah? He and Sarah are up in age, and Sarah is barren, and the time clock is ticking for fertility and she does not believe she's going to bear a son in that old age. Remember that? And, and, and Abraham doesn't understand how in the world this is going to happen. Sarah's barren and she's up in years. And so God makes this promise again in, in, in 15. I promise you an heir and I promise you land. And then in verse 8 of chapter 15, don't miss this. Abraham asks this. He says, how will I know that I will possess this promised blessing? Like, God, this is, this is major. How in the world can I know that this is really going to happen? And he wasn't being disrespectful in this, but this is overwhelming to him. And God does something incredible that seems very peculiar to us. Now, listen to me, because I don't want you to miss this. He tells Abraham, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, a pigeon. Has God ever asked you to do something that seems really, really strange? Imagine this. God, how can I know that this is going to happen? Go to the farm and, and just grab me these animals. Well, Abraham knew what to do with them. He, he cut them in half and he laid them each, uh, each half opposite of the other. Now, this seems really peculiar, doesn't it? But in the days of Abraham, this was like a signing a covenant. Each person in the covenant, here's what they would do. They would walk between the halves of these cut up animals. And it was a symbolic way to guarantee the promise. It's like saying, if I break the agreement, I deserve to die just like these animals did. It was a sign of, I'm going to keep my word. This is a covenant. Now, Here's what's amazing about this. Don't miss it. You can go read this in, in um, Genesis 15 later. Abraham never walks through the halves of these animals. As a matter of fact, he falls into a deep sleep and God comes as a smoking fire pot in a blazing torch and he passes through the pieces. Now why in the world am I telling you this? Because the promise by God to Abraham is a covenantal promise and it does not depend in any way upon Abraham, but only upon God. All Abraham had to do, had to do was have faith in God, believe the promise of God. 
This covenant did not depend upon the works of Abraham at all. And God has been faithful to keep his promise. Tim Keller in his Galatians commentary says that if the law of Moses came as a way of salvation, then it means that God had changed his mind. It would mean that God decided that we did not need a Savior after all. And that he would give out his blessing on the basis of performance and not promise. So the law was never intended to be a means of salvation. That's what you need to know. Not even temporarily. So then, what is its purpose? Secondly, here's what we're going to look at. The scope of the law. What is the purpose? Look at verse 19. Paul poses this question. Why then the law? It was added because of trans. Until the offspring, talking about Christ, should come to whom the promise had been made. The law, according to these next several verses, has two functions. Number one, the law functions as a mirror. Alright? Don't miss this. The law functions as a mirror. I believe it functions as that today. The law, it says here, it was added because of transgressions. What in the world does that mean? Here's what the law of God does. It reveals how sinful we really are. And here's the point. So that we might know we are in great need of a Savior. See, many people, here's the problem, especially in modern day. People, secular people, you know what they think? They believe that inherently they're good. That they are good people. They, They... Reduce life to a set of weights and balances. And here's what they're doing. They're justifying going, I I know I'm not perfect, I've made mistakes, but I'm a really charitable person. I'm a really I'm a really good person. I I, I'm loving and I I serve in you know I volunteer in my community and I and I help people and, and, and they're justifying and they're hoping in the end they think that as long as the good outweighs the bad, that they're okay. And that's how they judge whether somebody's good or somebody's bad. If, you, if you're good, is, you know, if, if the good you do outweighs your mistakes, then you're alright. If not, sorry, you're a bad person. But here's what the law does. It shows that that theory is hogwash. Because God's righteous standard is what? It's perfection. And every one of us are lawbreakers. We've all sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. In the law... Okay, and I'm talking about this between the civil law, the ceremonial law, the moral law of God. I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments. In the law, there are over 600 rules to follow. And nobody outside of Jesus can keep them perfectly. There's not a man or woman that's walked this earth outside of Christ that has kept the law perfectly. And Christ knew that. God knew that when He gave the law to Moses. He never expected for Israel to perfectly keep the law. What's it for? It's to show us how sinful we are. And it even, the, the, the scripture, I believe it's in Romans, alludes to the fact that it even, the law increased transgressions. And here's why. I, I've, I've alluded to this before, but remember the, the cartoons, the, when cartoons used to be really good, like Buns, Bug, Bunny and Tom and Jerry and, and those kind of cartoons? There was always, on every show, there was like a red button that said, do not push. And when you see a red button, and and you'll relate to this, that says, do not push, what do you want to do? Push it. 
Because our flesh, apart from Christ, we are more wicked than we ever thought possible. Our depravity is much more serious. So when the law was given, it wasn't given as a means of salvation. Because when that law came, what do you think the Israelites wanted to do? They wanted to break every one of them. Oh, they wanted to serve God, but I shouldn't steal. I kind of want to steal now. I'm not supposed to murder. I kind of want to kill somebody now. You know, this is not me, by the way. Don't run. All right. The law shows how wicked we are. And I believe it's helpful for that today. You know, if you, if you go share the gospel with somebody and, and you ask them, somebody just, you know, that's in our secular world and, and they don't know much about church, about God, and, and you ask them, would you like to be saved? What do you think they're going to ask you? Exactly. Saved from what? What, do you, what are you asking me? Here's the point. If you don't know that you're a sinner, you'll never see your need for a Savior. That's the point of the law. God gave the written law so it's very clear as to what is right and what's wrong according to God. To show His values, to show what's acceptable, to show what holiness really is. And none of us apart from Christ and the help of the Holy Spirit can keep it at any level of success. That's the point of the law. So it is a, it's a mirror so we can see in fact how sinful we are. But there's a second function and it's brought out in verse 24 for time's sake. I won't go back and read that one again. But it is, it functions as a guardian. Alright? Now the word guardian here refers to a servant of the family in this day who would be responsible to watch over the, the son or daughter from infancy on up through childhood. And here's what would happen. The guardian would govern the child's behavior. Provide discipline and training. But the guardian, watch this, would never have the power... To change the child's heart. Or to give a child an inheritance. This is not a mother or father. This is a guardian. And that's exactly how the law worked in Israel. It was a guide, a teacher, revealing how God's children should behave. But it could never give life. It was never meant to. It could never change a heart. It could never give an inheritance. It could never give you eternal life. Look at verse 25. Paul says, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. It's not necessary. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We don't need that guardian if we're in Christ. Because we have Jesus, and as verse 14, going back there, points out we have His Spirit. We don't need the guardian anymore. We have matured. We are people of faith, sons and daughters of God. And His law, I love this, part of the new covenant, His law is now written on our hearts. And so our hearts, this is a glorious miracle in the new birth. Our hearts are now bent towards the will of God, the Word of God. Because we love Him and we're infused with the power of the Holy Spirit. We're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And so our hearts become bent towards pleasing Him. His commands are no longer burdensome. I love 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. It says this, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. But here's the great part. And His commandments are not burdensome. The law, the Old Testament, without the Holy Spirit, it was burdensome. But His commands now are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith 
Here's the bottom line. The law was never meant to be used as a means to salvation. But rather to show mankind's desperate need for a Redeemer. It's to point us to Jesus. To show us that we need a Savior. That we can't get to God by our own merit. That's why we need Christ. So finally I'm going to look thirdly at the season of the law. We looked at the scope. I want to look at the season. Because now I think this begs the question. What role if any does the Old Testament law play in the life of the believer. And I'm going to freak you out in a second. But hang with me to the end. Verse 25 makes it clear that the law no longer functions as a guardian. So if I were to ask you, are we under the law? You would say, no. no. What if I were to ask you, are we under the Ten Commandments? There you go. Good answer. How many would I tell you that we're not under the Ten Commandments? Just kind of swallow hard and think I'm a heretic. Let me tell you what I mean. The scripture in a few different places, talks about that Christ fulfilled the law. Okay? He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law. Now the civil and the ceremonial law, when we talk about circumcision, we talk about eating kosher, we know that that has no bearing on us at all. But we like to think as Christians, that's why we make such a big deal about the Ten Commandments being taken down. We think that we're still under the moral law. In regards to the Old Testament. Now stay with me. I believe that Christ has fulfilled that as well. And it says simply in scripture. That we are not under the law. We're not under the law. Okay. But watch this. Let's go back to the analogy of the guardian. Think about this. Once a child grows up and enters maturity. There's no longer a need for the guardian to manage them anymore. However. If the guardian has functioned properly in a child's life, what happens? The values instilled in that son or daughter will be a part of that child's life forever. Okay? My parents instilled values in me, and they don't have to follow me around and remind me of those all the time. I was brought up with those values. Okay? So it is with the law. When we come to faith in Christ, it's not that we're totally disconnected now from the values of God. It's not that, okay, anything goes now. But the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. The civil and the ceremonial laws of Israel have no bearing in our lives whatsoever. But what about the moral law? What about the Ten Commandments? We're not governed by the Ten Commandments anymore. And here's what I mean. In other words, we don't pull out a list of rules every morning and go, all right, we're trying to keep them. That's the essence of Christianity. We've got to do these things. Instead, what do we do? We walk by the Holy Spirit. We walk by faith in Christ. And birth out of faith in our relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit's presence in our life, here's what happens. We gladly live out by faith the law of Christ, which is to love God and love people. That's what the New Testament is called to Love God, love people. That's the New Testament law. So I, I, I'm okay with them taking the Ten Commandments down in public places. I just wish they put up the new command. The law of Christ. Love God, love people. And what a wonderful world this would be. If that's the law we live by. Now watch this. Are the law of Christ and the law of the Ten Commandments, are those, is there a disconnect there? No. Because the moral law of the Ten Commandments, they show forth. The values of God. 
They show forth the values of God. So watch this. If I love God, am I going to worship any other gods? No. If I love God, will I use His name in vain? No. If I love people, will I, will I steal or will I murder or will I commit adultery? No. We can go down the list. Bottom line is this. We're not under the law in that the law doesn't govern our lives. Christianity is not a set of rules to be followed. Don't miss this. Hear me. Christianity is not a set of rules to be followed. And often in the church, it's reduced to that. For you to be a Christian, it means this and this and this. When we used to have people join the church back in the old day, you signed a, a, a covenant and here's what it said. It didn't say, love God, treasure Christ. Walk in love, uh, love others. Here's what it said. Don't go to movies anymore. Don't you ever let alcohol touch your lips. And you just handed a list of rules and you don't, you don't walk out going, oh, I just love this church. You go, the weight of the law has been put on me. We've reduced Christianity to a set of rules to be followed. And it's so much more to that than that. When we have a relationship with Jesus, the Spirit leads us by faith. And we walk in love, and in that we fulfill the law of Christ. So I ask you this today, are you living by promise, or are you living by law? Watch this. Australian pastor Peter Adam beautifully describes the frustration with trying to live by the works of the law. If you're a Ten Commandment person and that's what Christianity is to you, here's what it means. It means constant frustration. Because any measure of success in living by the law of God produces arrogance. And failure produces despair. So it is a lose-lose when you try to live by the law. When you try to get to God by living by law, and that's what you reduce Christianity to. And I want you to think of that for a moment, because you, you all know some law people, right? There's likely some in this church. I hope not. Here's what happens. They're always frustrated, and they're often very, very mean. Because they're always in condemnation, and they want... They, as they say, what misery loves company, and they want everybody else to feel condemned. How many have ever been in church where all you did do is feel condemned? Did that make anybody just want to serve the Lord more? No. When they have any measure of success, here's what happens: they put themselves on a more. These are legalists. They put themselves on a moral pedestal, and they make everyone else feel subpar. Well, I don't go in places like that. Well, I don't talk to people like that. They put themselves on a moral pedestal. Then what happens? When they fail, and they will fail because none of us can keep the law, they're fearful and they're despaired. And y'all, some of y'all have experienced this because I've talked to you. You never know from one minute to another where you stand with God. Because to you, here's what Christianity is. If I'm keeping the law, then I'm good. And if I were to die right now, I'd go to heaven. But if I mess up, and we know we mess up, it's all over for me. Because it depends on me and not Him. That is a miserable way to live. And thank God He didn't call us to live that way, but He called us to live by promise. So here's what I'm doing. I'm calling those of you 
who make Christianity into a set of do's and don'ts to repentance today. And this is a good thing, by the way. And I invite you to look to Christ, to rest in His finished work, to not be driven by despair and fear, but to simply love Jesus and to walk by the Spirit. And I'm not saying that obedience doesn't matter. It does. But uh, this came to me when I was preaching this at the halfway house this morning. And finally, when I said this, just out of my spirit, the, the, the guys that were a little bit confused across the table of how this works and grace come together, they looked at me like, now we get it. And I said, oh, i got to write this down. So here it is. We're not Christian because we follow the law. We follow the law because we're Christian. See the difference? I'm not saying, this is not a church, don't misunderstand me, that anything goes. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that sin is not a big deal. Sin is a big deal. Because the Bible says without holiness, none of us will see the Lord. But what I'm saying is, the burden... Of the law doesn't fall on us because Christ already bore it. He freed us so we don't have to have the Ten Commandments plastered on our wall when we wake up in the morning. Nothing wrong with that as long as you're not trying to count on those to get you to Him. As long as you don't reduce Christianity to those laws. Instead, here's what we do. This is what I told them this morning. Guys, instead of me just... Weekly giving you don't, 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 don't. And there's a time for that. Don't get me wrong. Paul addresses some of those things in other letters. Here's what I want to... This is the key, I think. If I can get you to value Jesus above all things. If I can get you to understand how glorious and how wonderful God is. If I can get you to delight in the Lord and just keep looking to Jesus. You won't need those other things. That we call sin. Because Christ is infinitely satisfying. He wants you to be delighted. He wants you to have joy. But He wants you to get that joy from Him. You don't get it by living by the Ten Commandments. You live it or you get it by treasuring Him above all things. So I invite you to stand as the priest team comes. If I have confused anybody, I will be glad to talk to you after service. Because I can see the internet now. My pastor doesn't believe in the Ten Commandments. He thinks they should be removed. You know. Don't take what I said out of context, please. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you today. To Him. You know, some of you might be thinking, if you're new to, to this, and you say, well, I need to clean myself up so I can get to God. No, that's why He came. Because you can't clean yourself up. He cleaned you up 2,000 years ago at the cross, and that will be appropriated to you as you just look to Him in faith today. If you're not a Christian you want to be, I, I'd love to pray with you. But I just invite, I'm going to say this, nobody's going to come, but I invite legalists to the, to the altar today. Invite legalists to the altar today. And and I say this. Listen. We've all walked in legalism at times, haven't we? To where we feel like, oh, I've done something bad. Maybe I can make it up by doing something really good today. Just natural legalists. Listen to a pastor. And he said, uh, he ran a red light and he knew that the picture snapped his picture. So he said, "I, I just... 
I stopped at the next green light to try to even it out. And that's what we tend to do. We think that we can just justify ourselves that we can't. I just invite you, if, if you feel the weight of wondering, you're a Christian, but you feel the weight of never knowing where you stand with God, I just invite you to come pray today. And just glory, relish in faith in Christ and the finished work of Jesus. A burden will be lifted from you. A burden will be lifted from you. Okay? I promise you, it's free. If you have any need, if you need healing in your body, in your mind, in your soul, whatever it is, we will pray with you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.